1620, a group of people called the Pilgrims landed somewhat by accident, but probably by providence, at what would be Plymouth, Massachusetts. The story of those early years that uh, we use this time of the year when we talk about Thanksgiving were years of hardship and deprivation and struggle, and yet, through it all, God was good to them. When we come to Thanksgiving time, it's good for us to look back at the early struggles of our country and really why the pilgrims were the pilgrims, why they came to this country, what were they looking for, and what did they find. There is much for us to learn as we go to Plymouth, Massachusetts. I want to ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all of God's Word, the longest psalm in all of the psalms. And we're going to be looking at just two verses of Scripture, verse 89 and 90. Now, I, I take a great deal of time every Christmas to deal with the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ, His coming into this world, why He came, how He came, the fact that He was born of a virgin, and that He came to take away our sins, and He came to seek and to save that which was lost, and He came as the Lamb of God. And so Christmas is important, and celebrating the birth of Christ is important, and that's always something that needs to be anchored at the center of what we do. But, but I have, through the years, realized that it's really important that when we come to Thanksgiving time to pull over and park a little bit. In fact, it would be very, very good and very justifiable, and there's certainly no shortage of material if we pulled over and parked for a whole month and said, here are the, fo- here are the reasons why we should be thankful. But this particular year, this particular Thanksgiving, uh, it is an important time. I'm going to ask if somebody back there by that door would please close it for me. People walking in the hall distracts me, and the older I get, the more distracted I get. Thank you very much. So uh, let me tell you a story at the beginning. This is going to be a different kind of sermon because I'm actually going to do what they don't tell you to do or what they tell you not to do in seminary. I'm going to take a text and depart from it, but here's the reason for it. In 2009, I was invited to speak at Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary in Schenectady, New York, and it was their annual Founders Day Bible Conference, and so it was an honor to be asked to go, and Betty and I decided that we would go early and do a little historical tour across the Northeast because I hadn't been up in that area very much. So we flew into Albany, New York. I think we flew southwest, whichever the airline is where you stand up and hold straps while you're traveling. I think that's southwest. We flew southwest and uh, landed into Albany. And the thing is, I have no idea where our luggage went. It just disappeared. And so there, there was no luggage. We stood there while the carousel spun around and there was nothing there. And so we didn't know how do you lose that luggage, but we lost it. So there we were and we hadn't carried much on, just uh, there we were. So we went down to see, put in a, a claim for lost luggage, and they, uh, it, it's always amazing how they do this to me. They give, they give you this little kit of overnight stuff that you might need, and all of my kits, they always have combs in them. And I just find something ironic about that. But anyway, little kit, toothbrush, razor, comb, and if you, I've got a good deal on a hardly used comb if you're interested. So this was, uh, this was the beginning of our trip. We spent a night there in Albany, and then the next day we got up and drove across Massachusetts. We went to Northampton, which is where um, Jonathan Edwards pastored and preached. There is an Edwards Memorial Church there. 
And I, I like to go to graveyards. I don't know if anybody else is interested in that type of thing, but I can assure you one person is not. She's already been in church this morning, and that's Betty. She does not like graveyards. Not that she's scared of anything. She just doesn't like that kind of thing. But I like to go to cemeteries. I like to go to graveyards. And so we stopped at the Water Street Graveyard Cemetery there in Northampton, where most of the Edwards family is buried. Jonathan Edwards was really, along with George Whitfield, he was right in the midst of what was the first great awakening in this country. So this was important history, religious history, Christian history to me, about the founding of our nation and the first great awakening. So most of the Edwards family is buried right there, and Timothy Dwight, one of the early founders or one of the early presidents of Yale University, was, was buried there and, uh, and, and all of that. So we spent some time there, and then we traveled on over to Plymouth, Massachusetts. And so it was, in a, it, it was a very uh, interesting thing to get to Plymouth, and really when I got to Plymouth, I'd, I'd never heard of this huge monument that had been built in Plymouth. I, I had not heard uh, Kirk Cameron's or seen Kirk Cameron's movie about monuments, but it is quite an impressive monument. And what I knew about Plymouth is probably what a lot, in the, and the Pilgrims is probably what a lot of you all know about. I mean, you know about Plymouth Rock. So we went down to the shore to look at Plymouth Rock, and really it's not all that impressive. I mean, it's got the date 1620, 400 years ago, when they landed and they stepped out on, on the shore there in Massachusetts. And then there's a replica, the Mayflower 2 is there that you can actually get on, get a tour of the Mayflower ship and realize how 102 people plus crew are crammed into this one boat to make their way across the Atlantic and uh, how God provided for them and God cared for them and brought them over. And so there's all of that that's there. And maybe you've heard a lot about Plymouth through the years. Maybe you know a lot about the story of the pilgrims. But I don't want to take anything for granted this morning, because 400 years ago this year, our forefathers, the Plymouth, the, the, the pilgrims, landed at Plymouth, and you may have heard of William Bradford, and you may have heard of William Brewster, and you may have heard of Squanto, you may have heard of Samoset, and a lot of other Indian names that surfaced there, but I'm afraid the longer we go, the further we go, less and less people know the story the true story of the founding of our country. So what I'm going to tell you is very important. We live in a world where history is rewritten, and now, last year, in 2019, the New York Times released a story, a curriculum really, called the 1619 Project. It's kind of a competitor with the 1620 narrative of how the pilgrims came and landed here. And so for 399 years, we could see that America began with a quest for freedom to worship. And I, I hope to prove that to you this morning. But now children are being taught, according to the New York, New York Times, that America had an illegitimate founding based on slavery. The 1619 Project, and I quote, aims to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the national narrative. And then there is this. It's not history based on fact, but history based on ideology. Now, we know that America has a 
slavery history. And it's not a thing to be proud of. It's a, it's a thing to repent of and to be ashamed of. But in the teaching of the 1619 curriculum, the 1620 truths that we were taught as kids growing up, many of us, with regard to how this country was founded, are being swept aside. And so you construct a brand new narrative. And if it's fact, if it's not based on fact, but if it's based on ideology, then you can say, whatever I believe, my ideology of how this country came to be, then I can recraft and reframe history to make it happen. For instance, there are those that are saying today that America really in its founding was a socialistic society. So what do you have to do? You go back and you reframe the whole narrative of how the country came to be. So you come up with an idea or you craft a narrative that says the history of America really is based upon socialism and it's not really based upon democracy as we know it today. And there is a rise of that type of teaching in our country. Well, back to Plymouth. While Betty and I were there, day one, our luggage didn't come. Day two, our luggage didn't come. In fact, we were getting kind of ripe by that time. When the luggage finally came, we were very happy people. It just so happened it came the day before we were getting ready to leave. And the day we were getting ready to leave, I got up early that morning and I took my Bible and I try to read through my Bible every year. And I have a pattern and I follow that that pattern. And it just so happened on that particular day in August of 2009, I was in the middle part of Psalm 119. Actually, I was at the verses that we're going to look at. And on that morning, I got up and I took my Bible and I walked up the steps to a place called Burial Hill. And there at Burial Hill, I am totally surrounded by dead pilgrims. This is where they were buried. Monuments to William Bradford to the families of pilgrims up there all around. Uh, A huge monument to Adoniram Judson, one of the first missionaries that went out from this country, went went to Burma to establish the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not buried up there because he died at sea, but much of his family is buried up there. There's a whole there's a whole Judson family plot. I had no idea they had gone out from Plymouth, and he was buried at sea. I opened my Bible that morning while I sat on a park bench in that cemetery. And these words I read, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. There are two verses here that assure me whatever path we walk, wherever we go, whatever happens in our country, we have a God that even yet is in control. And God was in control of what took place in Plymouth in that first year and the coming of pilgrims to this country. And God was in control of the establishment of the United States of America and all that they endured to reach a point where we could have the religious freedom we have. God was in control. And I will say today, forever, O Lord, thy word is established. It is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. You have established the earth and it abideth and it is all because of God. Hello, this is Monty Schenkel, and we sure appreciate you listening to this podcast. This is a new effort on our part from Take Heart Ministry, 
A little over a year ago, we began Take Art Ministry with the intention of telling people by means of radio and also the internet and now by podcasts that they can take heart because Jesus cares for them. If you'd like to know more about us, if you'd like to check our ministry out, you can go to takeheart.org. If you would like to personally contact me, you can write to Monty Schinkel or you can write to mschinkel at takeheart.org. Thank you for listening and now back to the podcast. Thanksgiving celebrations happen because of preparation. And next week, I want to talk about that first Thanksgiving. But today, I want to talk about those brave men and women, who they were, why they came. And I think we can learn some valuable lessons, even as we make preparations for another American Thanksgiving that is going to look a lot different, maybe, than any Thanksgiving we've ever known before. So I want to say before you four things. Now, this is kind of a historical sermon. It could get hysterical, but it's historical nonetheless. So if you enjoy history, you'll be with me. If you're not, if you'll wake up in about 23 minutes, I'm going to let you go home, okay? So just stay with me. First of all, the pilgrims separated. Now, I want you to listen very closely. We know today about the separation of church and state. But where the pilgrims came from, they had no such knowledge. They desired it, but they didn't have it. Now, why did they desire it? And why is this principle of the separation of church and state so important? Why should we not deny it? And why should we fight for it? It's very important. England knew nothing of the separation of church and state. Wars had been fought on England's ground between Catholicism and Protestantism, and it had waged back and forth. And so the question emerged, who's going to be head of the church in England? Think about this. What if the leader of the nation was the head of the church? What if every time we elected a new president, that president was going to be the head of not just the country, but the head of the church for the next four years? How do you think that would look? I mean, we're talking about something that wouldn't look so good. But in England, they went from queen to king and king to queen and queen and queen and, and uh, the whole monarchy, the English monarchy, uh, the Pope had been crowded out of leadership of the church, so Catholicism was set aside, and what they established was what we know of as the Church of England. And as time had passed on England's shore, uh, the Bible was being printed. William Tyndale had translated the Bible in 1535. In order to do that, he had to hide out, separate himself, because his life was in danger as he was translating the Bible. So in 1535, he translated the first English Bible, and then in 1536, he was burned at the stake. Not unusual. Many, many, many people who believed in the Word of God and all they wanted to do was worship God according to the dictates of their own heart were burned at the stake. They liked to burn people at the stake then. And Tyndale's last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And in 1536, he was executed. executed. The King James Version that I so often read out of was translated in 1611 under, of all people, King James. But now let me tell you something about the King James Version. I believe to this day it's an excellent uh, translation, but I don't stand up here and read out of the original King James Version because if I did, you wouldn't understand it. 
And I'm not sure I can read it. There has been revision after revision after revision, always so that the language stayed in the, the, the translation stayed in the language of the common people. For instance, for King James, when the Bible was translated, the translators who also were concerned about their own safety, they transliterated baptizo to baptized. And you say, well, that's no big, big deal, but the word baptizo means immerse, plunge under. And so, we have a lot of different views on what baptism is across the spectrum of denominations today, but, but the true meaning of the word baptizo means to, not to sprinkle, but to plunge under. But since King James believed in sprinkling, then they were afraid to come back with that particular translation. Just to say that there was all this upheaval in England, and slowly people began to Bible for themselves, and that makes quite a difference when you can read the Bible for yourself. Wars were fought, popes were displaced, somewhere in all of it, the Church of England became the official church with the King of England as the head. Imagine if we had such an official church in our country today, but our forefathers in their wisdom made certain that that wouldn't happen. And this is important. There were two groups that emerged inside the Church of England. One of those groups was the Puritans. Now, we hear about the Puritans that came to our country and established a lot of educational institutions and revivals. There were Puritans across the Northeast that showed up about 10 years after the Pilgrims came. But those Puritans believed they should stay in the Church of England and do what? Purify it from within. Then there was another group called the Separatists. And they felt compelled to honor God's Word and come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And out of this group, the separatists, this is where the pilgrims come from. Peter Marshall wrote a wonderful book, The Light and the Glory. And he said this concerning the separatists who are our pilgrims. They believe that the church could only be under the headship of Jesus Christ. And hence, no person, not even the queen, could take the title head of the church. They chose to separate themselves from the church and conduct their own worship. And given their way, these separatists would reduce worship to get, now listen to this, they would reduce worship to this, primitive preaching, teaching, singing, and free praying. Free praying praying means nobody writes your prayers out for you and you're not reading somebody else's prayer. So primitive preaching, that doesn't mean you have to have an old preacher to have primitive preaching, but singing and teaching and praying. And that was against the law, because what it would do would, would do away with 16 centuries of established liturgical tradition. At present, according to Peter Marshall, there were probably less than a thousand of this sect, this group, But clearly, if this sort of thing was tolerated, other believers who spoke enthusiastically of experiencing a personal encounter with Christ, the pilgrims believed in having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Remember, they believed in freedom, and everybody had to know Jesus. 
So these believers who spoke enthusiastically of experiencing a personal encounter with Christ might take it in their heads to follow their lead. Before long, you would have little churches of fanatics being raised up everywhere with no semblance of order or conformity and totally out of control of the bishops. Queen Elizabeth had not really given the bishops the free hand which they wanted to suppress this group before it became an epidemic. She seemed to feel that a few executions for heresy were sufficient to hold the movement in check. But now that the vain, petty, and manipulable James I was on the throne, the bishops had their way. And the separatists were hounded, bullied, forced to pay assessments to the Church of England, clapped into prison on trumped-up charges, driven underground. They met in private homes to which they came at staggered intervals and by different routes because they were constantly being spied upon. In the Midlands town of Scrooby, persecution finally reached the point where the congregation to which John Bradford was, or William Bradford belonged elected to follow those other separatists who had already sought asylum in Holland. Thus they came to Leyden where they were forged together by adversity. For as near penniless foreign immigrants, they qualified for only the most menial labor and had to work terribly hard just to subsist. Bradford wrote that before coming, they had, as the Lord's free people, joined themselves by a covenant of the Lord into a church estate in the fellowship of the gospel to walk in His ways and made known unto them according to their best endeavors whatsoever it would cost them, the Lord assisting them, and it cost them a lot. By 1619, after nearly a dozen years in Holland, they finally said they had to move. So they separated. Not only did the pilgrims separate, they suffered. So Bradford listed, listed these five things as to why they had to come to the New World. Had they, they had to get out of England or out of Holland at that point. Grim poverty... Those that were great scholars were forced to work on the docks with everyone else and were getting paid two pence a day. The fear of war with Spain, a 12-year truce between Spain and the Dutch was about to end and they were afraid they were going to be thrown into a war against England. And England was their country. They loved their country. They feared their children were being corrupted by the worldly Dutch and they were, their children were forsaking the Lord's day, and they were giving in to the compromise and temptations all around them. They were worried for the future of their kids, so therefore they had to do something. And then their allegiance to the British crown, they didn't want to be a part of a war with England, as I said. But then this one so often gets set aside in our narrative of history. They desired to advance the gospel. It was not the least of the reasons for leaving Holland. They wanted to propagate and advance the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in the remotest parts of the world. They wanted to carry the gospel to New England. And that's, that's important. And so they made their preparations to sail to Virginia. Their pastor, John Robinson, who remained in Holland, falling down on his knees, blessed them, and as they were all with watery eyes, mutual embraces, and many tears, they took their leave one of another. So, these early pilgrims, these separatists, they separated, and then they suffered in Holland for about 14 years, and then they sailed. On July the 22nd, 1620, 
The pilgrims boarded two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower. Now, we know about the Mayflower. As I said, there's a replica of it in Plymouth Harbor that you can, you can go through and see it. The Speedwell, we don't know much about because it didn't speed very well. And so they sailed out and they got a few days offshore and the thing was leaking so bad they knew it was going to sink. So they took all the pilgrims, 102 of them that had going to be on two ships. They now were all on one ship and they sent the Speedwell back. And the amazing thing is that the Mayflower made the voyage very well. It was overcrowded, but there was very little sickness. And they said, the, perhaps the reason it was, there was very little sickness is because the Mayflower had belonged to a wine merchant and its hull was soaked with wine. And they seemed to think it kept them well. Now, I'm not advocating you leave here and go to Alavin. And so on November the 9th, 1620, they heard the words, land ho. And I'm going to talk more about that next week. But now I want you to see this final thing this morning about our pilgrims. They, they separated from all that was going on in England. They came out from among them to be this really was about what they believed and this really was about their quest for freedom to worship God. It really was, no matter how you rewrite it. And they, they did. They suffered uh, on the shores of Holland for a period of time after suffering in their own homeland of England. And then they sailed and they made that journey from July to November until they landed in Plymouth. But setting off the coast on the Mayflower, off the coast of Plymouth, Massachusetts, they signed one of the most important historical documents that we could have in this country. It was called the Mayflower Compact. It's very significant. And I want you to listen to how it began. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord, King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., having, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. They thought they were in Virginia, by the way. Their GPS wasn't working very well. Notice what I just read. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of king and country, they didn't come to this country to get wealthy. They came to this country so they could worship God. They came to this country so they advanced the cause of Jesus Christ. It was their desire to advance the cause of Christ. Do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the, in the presence of God and one another. Covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. And by virtue hereof, to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, con constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be, though most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, under which we promise all due submission and obedience, in witness whereof we have hereunto subscribed our names at Cape Cod the 11th of November in the year of the reign of our sovereign King James of England, 1620 A.D. Notice how it begins. In the name of our God. 
Notice what's in the middle of it. To advance the cause of Christ. To advance the kingdom of God. Why did they come? What is the truth about the founding of this nation? The truth about the founding of this nation, it was to advance the kingdom of God. You say, well, what about oppressing the native people of this land? They, they wanted the native people of this land to know Jesus Christ. So what's wrong with that? You see, I think we've adopted a narrative, an idea in our country today that they should be left alone and all people should be left alone and everyone should be left alone and sharing the gospel with them uh, was not, they should be left to their native gods. To do. But what is the cause of advancing the gospel of Christ and why the need for foreign missions anyway and why should you share the gospel with somebody else? It's because any person, no matter of their background, no matter where they're born or raised, any person that doesn't know Jesus Christ is lost. There was a burden upon these people to take the cause of Christ to them. And we notice how this first document begins, the Mayflower Compact, in, in the name of our God for the advancement of the cause of Christ. So 150 years passes. And we have this document. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So where does that document come from? Well, you say that's our Declaration of Independence. It is. But you notice a similarity. Right in that first document, the Mayfair Compact, God's right in the middle of it. The second document, God's right in the middle of it. Here's another thing I want to read to you. How about this? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people to peacefully assemble and petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's the First Amendment to our Constitution. There's something in common with the Mayflower Compact and with the Declaration of Independence and the First Amendment to our U.S. Constitution, the first bylaw. Now, we're told in, in interpreting Scripture and the fact that we have a Bible that we can read and it's been translated in our language, and we can only wish that everybody everywhere had a Bible in their own language. But when they begin to translate Scripture, bringing it out of Greek, bringing it out of Hebrew, they wanted to go back to the earliest possible writings that they could find, the earliest possible copies, because you close, the closer you get to the source, the more accurate you are in any of your stories or any of your narrations or any of your translations. So if we want to go back and get to the very source, the closer we can get to the beginning, the more accurate we are. How do you interpret the Declaration of Independence? Why is God in the middle of it? God was in the middle of the May Mayflower Compact. And God was in the middle of the Declaration of Independence. And what about this first article in the, in the U.S. Constitution? God's in the middle of that. And what about the charters that were given to all of the states? And nearly every one of them, I would say, in the first 13, all of them had some reference to the fact that this had something to do with a great God that watched over us. So we're not having Thanksgiving celebrations just to have turkey and just have family over. This year marks the 400th year that the pilgrims landed. It's good that we stop and honor them and remember them because religious freedom 
today is under attack. And the story of how we've become a country is under attack. The rewriting of history all the way around us, when the truth is we know today that it's only through Jesus Christ that we have any hope of eternity. This is just a bit of a story behind the story of the first American Thanksgiving. But what I want you to get today is we must treasure our freedoms. And history is very important, as it has been said, that if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. The same Jesus that saved them still saves us today. He's still our Savior. The need to press the gospel onto the ends of the earth is still with us today. And perhaps you've never trusted Him as your Savior. Today would be a wonderful day to, to come to know Him as your Savior. This morning as I finished the first service, and I mentioned the fact that people need to confess Christ there was a lady that came after the service that said, I want to confess Christ. I want to be baptized. And so, you know, out of a, sto a story of history, here's a young lady that says, well, she actually said, I've already prayed to receive Christ, but I want to identify, I want to be baptized. And I go back to a morning, a hot August morning on top of a hill, burial hill, just up there with a bunch of dead pilgrims. And God said to me, forever, O Lord, Thy word is settled in heaven, thy faithfulness unto all generations. Forever our God's word, our, the word of God is settled in heaven. He is faithful to all generations, and even to this day, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Dear folks, we have so much to be thankful for, so much to be thankful for. Would you bow your head with me this morning? Today, if God has said to you, you need to confess Christ as your Savior, you need to call on Him and honor Him as the Lord of your life, then I want to encourage you to do that. Thank you for listening to this podcast today. We appreciate you tuning in. We pray that this has been a blessing to you. And I pray that today you in your own heart can take heart because you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. And Jesus came to be the Savior of all who would call upon Him. And if today you've never trusted in Him, I encourage you to say, Lord Jesus, come into my life, forgive me and save me. And God's Word says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our purpose in all of this is to encourage you to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to grow in Jesus, and to take heart in Jesus. He cares for you.